Well, hey, I want to pray, um, and I want to pray for a couple of reasons, because, um, you know, we cannot wrangle God's word into our hearts. We cannot pull it and just try to cram it into our minds on our own. And um, as somebody who preaches, um, man, I have to acknowledge that I don't have the power to put anything in your heart. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then we're going to open God's word, and uh, we're going to ask the Lord to do that work that only he can do. And really, what, what I want this to be a model for you guys for is that before you open God's word, when you're at home, when you're doing private devotions, when you're maybe reading the word with your spouse or with a friend, you always want to open that time up, praying that the Lord would open your, your heart and your mind and that he would illuminate those words that you're going to read. So let, let's, let's do that right now. Let's acknowledge that before him. Holy Spirit, we pray just for that right now, that you would grant us a deeper humility and a, and a dearer affection for Jesus as you open our eyes to all that he suffered on trial before those who did not believe or receive him as the Christ, as we're about to see. Lord, let us stand as people unashamed of our identity in Christ, in whose name we pray and together we said, amen. Well, go ahead, grab your Bibles. You can turn to Mark 14, Mark 14, verse 53. We are in the home stretch now through Mark, getting ready to wrap an eight-month series here uh, at the end of September. And uh, if you guys remember last week, if you were here, we left off in the Garden of Gethsemane where we witnessed Jesus being betrayed by Judas. And if that wasn't enough, uh, he was then abandoned by all of his friends who fell asleep and then bailed on him uh, in what was uh, his most vulnerable hour on earth. Um, And if you're like me, uh, man, I read something like that and 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 I'm kind of pulling for those guys. And you know, my initial reaction is like, man, I would have never gone to sleep, right? Like I, I just think, no man, I would have hung in there until I remember how I fell asleep last Monday because I had cake. Right, and I think, man, there's, there's, man, there's, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, you, you know, you don't, you don't have some kind of stuff inside of you that these brothers didn't have. Like we come to the table just like they did, weak in our faith, weak in our uh, belief. And so this morning, what we're going to see now as we continue on in this story is Jesus is just inching nearer and nearer to the cross. Is we're going to see him on trial now before the Jewish court and before the Roman governor. Um, and, And this is what these men were faced with. They were faced with the dilemma of what to do with Jesus. That was the dilemma. We have Jesus. What do we do with him? They they were not living in a Jesus-neutral world. That is not what their world was composed of. And and to be honest, uh, neither are we. We are not living in a Jesus-neutral world. In fact, every action of our life, everything that you do, believe it or not, reveals your belief and your affection for Jesus. It illustrates where it's at because we do not live in a world absent or neutral of Jesus. Now, my wife and I, uh, about a week ago, we spent... Uh, we spent a few days with uh, her sister, my sister-in-law, I think that's how it works, uh, in Virginia on this island. And uh, man, it's right on the ocean. I know you guys are all feeling sorry for us right now. And, and, uh, but it was crazy, right? Because we get to this thing and um, you know, we, we think that we have some mosquitoes in Ohio, um, but we, I, I found out that we kind of don't. 
We kind of really don't have any mosquitoes in this state. Like, they have mosquitoes, right? So we, we walk outside. I mean, it was like, I mean, it was like Alfred Hitchcock's, like, the birds, right? They just, they just descended on us, and we were like, oh, you know, we'll you know, do a little spray or whatever and walk out and not really think much about it. And, I mean, literally, we just, like, we can't even see each other. We're so, you know, we're like those pictures of the dudes on the Internet who have all the bees all over them, right? And you can't even see their face. You guys don't know what I'm talking about. But that's how it looked like with the mosquitoes. And uh, so, man, we just run into the house, right? And, you know, and, and we're, we're spraying, it's like a gas chamber in there. We're just spraying each other, like, all over. She's fully clothed, right? And it's, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Jeff, am I, are we, is this going to be a conversation with, okay. Um, but, but, our, but our actions reveal our, our, our belief about mosquitoes. Dude, are you comparing Jesus with mosquitoes right now? I'm not. I'm not at all. I'm just saying, but our actions revealed what we thought was in our midst and in our presence. And at that moment, we didn't believe until we were affected by it. So one of our questions this morning as we lead off is this. What, what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? For some of us, for some of you, and we're going to see the example of this with the, with the cast of characters that we're given in this text. Some of you just want him to go away. It's a harsh thing to even, that's a harsh way to phrase it, right? But some of us just wish he wasn't there. Um, for other, uh, others of us, we, we tend to know he's there. We're kind of okay with it, but we follow him at a distance. Uh, and then some of us don't really want to, we just don't want to get involved. You know, we're not deeply offended. We're, we just don't really, we don't really see him as anything more than a novelty. But these actions of the heart, what they do is they point to something, right? They point to an unbelief. They point to a brokenness. They point to a lack of affection for Jesus. And what we're going to see this morning as we look at this cast of characters is that we too put Jesus on trial um, as long as our hearts remain unbroken for him. So let's pick right up in the text, Mark 14, 53. I'm going to read all the way through, through uh, 15, 15. So 14, 53, it says this. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony didn't agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And then some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. 
But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Chapter 15, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Verse six, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is God's word. So we have three casts of characters this morning. We have the Sanhedrin. This was like the equivalent of the Jewish council or the Jewish court. And we have Peter and we have Pilate. As we look down on verse 53, we see the Sanhedrin, this Jewish court, Jesus being led now to the high priest who at the time was named Caiaphas. Jesus being led to his house where a Jewish court was being assembled to try and prosecute him. And then we see Peter sort of slipping into the courtyard behind the mob, right? You can probably picture him with his, with his hoodie up, you know, trying to remain anonymous as he, as he warms his hands by uh, the fire. Now remember, when we talk about Peter here, this is the same guy who swore to Jesus. If you go back to verse 29, that even if they all fall away, he said, I will not. But what we have to understand about what's going on here with this Jewish court, with this council that's being assembled, is that this was a witch hunt, right? The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they can find nothing on Jesus. They got nothing. It's so bad, in fact, that they can't even get their stories to line up as they're just throwing and blasting him with these accusations. So the high priest, he addresses Jesus personally. But interestingly enough, Jesus stays silent and doesn't defend himself in that moment. Well, uh, why does he do that? Why does he stay silent? I mean, if someone is speaking lies about me, I mean, I'm not usually one to just go into silent mode, right? 
I like to defend myself, but he did it to actually fulfill a prophecy from Isaiah 53, 7, which tells us this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself against false charges. There's a lesson in there somewhere for us, I think. And you can meditate on that. So the high priest, he gets, gets a little more direct with Jesus as this uh, counsel continues in verse 61. And he asks him this question, okay? He says, are you the Christ? He says, the son of the blessed. So he gets right down into it. He gets pointed with Jesus. Come on, Jesus, say the thing that we're waiting for you to say so that we got the thing we need to incriminate you. And this time Jesus speaks. This time Jesus affirms his identity and he says, I am. I am the Christ. And then he actually references a prophecy from Daniel 7. Letting them know that not only is he the Christ, but that he's also going to come back with all authority to judge their mugs. All right, so he gets pretty real with them right in this statement. And the high priest gets it. The high priest understands what he's saying. The high priest kind of goes drama queen on us, right? He tears his clothes and he gets the council then to agree that Jesus should be punished now for the very sin that they're trying to get him on, which is blasphemy, claiming to be the son of God. The problem is that they have no power to do it because they're actually under Roman rule, okay? So these are men, as we read through this account, that just have this violent opposition to Jesus, who want to just eliminate him. And you know, I wonder if this describes some of you. Some of you would say, what, violent opposition? Like, brother, I'm sitting here right now. Like, if I was violent, I'd go up and I'd rip that horrible mic off your face right now, right? That would be violent, right? But I wonder if it does describe some of us for some of you of which sitting through a message like this might feel like torture because some of you are just trying to make somebody happy or maybe you're trying to alleviate some guilt or maybe your spouse has been on your case, all right, I'll go. It's 9 a.m., I got a little more time now. Maybe you're trying to make your parents happy and maybe you're younger and you're like, man, I have to go because they make me go but I'm begging you the minute I get a chance to get out of here, I'm out. I mean, let's not think that there's such a distant connection from the opposition that Jesus received from this Jewish court that may exist in some of our hearts. So think about that. But then we get this scene change, which happens to us kind of over and over again in Mark. Uh, we get this courtroom scene changing now to Peter in the courtyard, who is about to forget what Jesus told him back in verse 30. Now, we read this account of Peter, and this is a well-known account. P three times, Peter gets accused of knowing Jesus. And each time, he just denies it flat. He's like, I'm out. I don't know what you're talking about. And in fact, he freaks out so bad the third time in verse 71 that he starts to curse, and he starts to swear. So scared is he in that moment to have any association with Jesus. He says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Again, all of this after he emphasized emphatically declares to Jesus in verse 31 that if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I mean, I don't know what kind of bravado he was putting on when he said that to Jesus, right? And yet here he is. 
dude, it's not even a day later. This brother is scared out of his wits. He's bailed on Jesus. He's denying any association with him. And when the rooster crows a second time, it all comes back. The convo with Jesus comes flooding back and he remembers what he argued with Jesus about. And again, we, we think of ourselves in the place of Peter. And sometimes you go, oh, I've never denied him. I would never do that. If somebody asked me about God, I would at least say yes, right? But maybe you're in a place like Peter where you, you tend to follow Jesus at a distance. You tend to back off a little bit. You care about him as long as it doesn't get too personal and too uncomfortable. That's a dangerous place. Jesus has a place in my life, but he shouldn't expect too much from my life. That's what we think. That's what we say. Maybe we live that way. Maybe that is representative of your life, and you never even realized it. Do you see yourself here in Peter? And then we get another scene change as we go into chapter 15, this time to Pontius Pilate, who happened to be the Roman governor at this particular time in history. Now, now Pilate just brings him in, and he doesn't waste any time in Mark's account. And he asks Jesus in chapter 15, verse 2, he just goes right there. He says, look, here's my question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, you have said so. A better way to even phrase that line would be, you got it. Like what you said, it was emphatic. There was no, there was no teetering on that. So here's the situation with Pilate's question, the way he asks it. The Jews, they couldn't get a man sentenced or arrested on charges of blasphemy alone. That wasn't enough for the Roman government to arrest a Jewish man. But they could get a man sentenced for claiming to be king. So Pilate's question is interesting when he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Because Jesus' answer would have given him the place that would have promoted him over Caesar. And so the chief priests, man, this is what they've been waiting for. They run with this angle. And not only do they run with this angle, but they continue to blast him with accusations. Well, all the while, like we saw when he was at the Jewish council, Jesus just remains quiet. He doesn't defend the lies and the accusations. What's interesting is that it says Pilate is amazed at this. That struck him. He's not used to seeing somebody um, being condemned and not speak up for himself. And he's amazed at Jesus' restraint. No doubt at his lack of defense. No doubt at the character that he's showing in this moment. And when you read some of the other gospel accounts, Pilate at some point comes to Jesus and says, like, do you understand what's happening here? Do you understand that I have the power to free you? Like, are you getting the severity of the situation? Obviously, Jesus completely understood the severity of the situation, unlike Pilate. Now, tradition tells us that Pilate, this was not a governor that had a lot of love for the Jewish people. But this was a guy who did want the Jewish people to love him. So since it was a tradition to release a prisoner to them, every year at Passover, he suggests, hey, how about we release Jesus? Because he knew he could sense that the council 
had no legitimate claim against him. They were just motivated by envy. He sensed that from their words, from their accusation. He could tell that they had no claim of truth over Jesus. He had seen mobs riled up. This was his position. He understood the kind of judgment they were hurling at Jesus and that it lacked legitimacy. Instead, they say, no way. They demand the release of a dude named Barabbas, it says, who was part of, of what's called the insurrection, which was like a, a rebel faction of, of men who would come out against Rome, would come out protesting, who would come out and maybe do crazy things, maybe murder a Roman official to make a statement that says, hey, we're not happy with Roman rule. So that was what Barabbas was in there for. And then, of course, as we get further along in the story, we realize that there's something going on with Pilate, right? There's something going on because the way he keeps responding to Jesus is a little strange. Um, he tries to pardon Jesus, of all things. So we get, we get a little bit of a hint and a picture into some of Pilate's character here. He even asks him in verse 12 through 14, he, said, he asks the council, he said, what, what do you want me to do with them? Like, what evil has he done? Like, you guys help me understand. And what we see here in Pilate is we see a, a man that's conflicted. There was something about Jesus that intrigued him. And in fact, when we read in, in Matthew 27, 19, we read about Pilate's wife who had a dream and told him, she said, hey, I know what's going on here and I had this disturbing dream and I'm telling you right now, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Interesting that his wife uh, declared him righteous. Strange. So what does Pilate do? Well, he, he caves in. He caves into the angry mob who is crying, crucify him. He releases the prisoner that they want released, Barabbas. And then it says he delivers Jesus to the cross. Ultimately, Pilate didn't want to get involved, did he? He didn't want to get involved. Jesus was an interesting man, but he was not about to invest any more time into this situation than he needed to or was going to put his political position at risk. Again, as we look at the hearts of these men, maybe that's an apt description of your involvement with Jesus. Is it just something that you don't want to get involved with? Is it just something that you feel is going to cost you something? You know, keep me at a distance, you know? I want to be in, but I want to be out. What's interesting for our purposes here is that the issue wasn't whether Pilate or the Sanhedrin council believed he was right or wrong. The issue was that they didn't believe who Jesus was at all. He was on trial and he was on trial for their lack of belief. He was on trial for their lack of love. He was on trial for their lack of affection for him. So what do you do when you're confronted with Jesus the way these men were confronted with Jesus? What do you do when you're confronted with the person and work of Jesus? Because what do we say in the beginning? And none of this is neutral. And in fact, if this is your first time at Substance, you do not live in a Jesus-neutral world any longer because we have brought him to the table of your lives. Are you, in effect, putting Jesus on trial by the way that you live your life? 
Maybe you are somebody who demands that he bends to your will. Because that's what we see with the council. These were men who didn't believe Jesus. These were men who were envious of Jesus. These were men who were saying, Jesus is coming in to take a position and a place of influence away from us that we believe is rightfully ours because this is how we have power and control over the people. So what they were demanding from Jesus was that he bent to their will. Stop saying what you're saying, dude. Stop being who you're being. Stop making the claims you're making. Stop healing the people you're healing. Stop invading our lives. Stop coming into our territory. Uh, dude, when you phrase it like that, like it starts to feel more real, right? Because I know none of us are part of the Sanhedrin. But when we phrase it like that, it starts to get a little more real, demanding that he bends to our will. Thinking that the goal of Jesus Christ when he came to earth and died was to do just that. It's interesting. Or maybe you want to keep him at a distance like Peter. Peter believed. Peter believed, but man, it was not cozy anymore. I mean, it all got real for Petey. It wasn't cozy. It was uncomfortable, right? Associating with Jesus now was about to cost him something. And again, it, it's always going to cost us something. It's going to cost us different things at different times in different ways. But people that lead their lives with a hope and a trust and a belief and an affection for Jesus means that it's going to come out of you in a way that people are going to go, don't like it. Or maybe you're a little more like Pilate. Maybe you treat him like a novelty, right? Like, that's cute. That's interesting. I got some friends who live down the street. They go to subs. They do this thing. I mean, they seem to be mildly happy. They don't, you know, they don't fight with their spouses quite as much as we do. Their, their kids seem mildly more adjusted than our kids, you know? They, they, they do some things that, that make it look like they're a little more secure in their place in life. I guess Jesus is good for that, Right? Maybe we'll go to church, the kids need some morals, they need some ground. I mean, I don't, but it'd be great for the kids, it'd be great for my wife. That's Pilate. Just don't let me get too involved. Those are some of the ways that we put Jesus on trial by challenging the truth of his words by the actions of our lives. By believing in God like good Americans but having the cares of this world choke out any affection for his son. The problem with that is that there will come a day when your lack of Jesus will coincide with your need for Jesus. What the heck do you do then? What do we do then? Man, I mean, you'd have to be living in a, in a shelter to not see what's going on in, in Houston right now. I mean, what devastation. I mean, houses, churches, businesses. I mean, just submerged underwater. I mean, nobody thought this was going to be their lives a year ago. No Houstonians or whatever they're called didn't think like this was their future. All their material possessions, man, all getting soggy right now. All those houses, those cars, those lawns, those beautiful televisions, those four-wheelers, those man caves, 
You want me to just keep, I can just keep going on and on and listing stuff. All those things have now shifted, haven't they, in their level of importance. Oh, not so concerned with the stuff that's getting waterlogged in my living room right now. There's more important things. Here's my question. Who do you think is most secure right now in Houston? Who do you think is most assured? Who do you think is most hopeful, least filled with despair? Well, it's the ones who are holding on to the thing that can never be lost, which is Jesus. I mean, there's nothing else for them. There's nothing left in their lives. By the way, there really never was. Some of them just know it now. And we don't have the privilege, if I can even use a word like that, to get to that place of desperateness that they are. Tim Keller has said, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until he's all you have, right? I don't know if some of you guys may have seen this video. It went up on social media. Um, it's a video of a father walking with his son. Um, and they're walking away from wherever they used to live. And he said to the TV reporter, we've lost everything, but I'm so thankful because God is good. What? He's just walking. He has his arm around his son. I mean, this is someone who is consoled because he lives in truth. Truth that Jesus has not lost control. Truth that Jesus has not stopped caring. Because houses are not truth. Cars and garages and lawns are not truth. Jesus is truth. This dude's whole world is underwater, but he walks on a bedrock of hope and affection for Jesus. That speaks something. Remember the promise that Jesus makes to Peter back in chapter 10, verse 28. Let's turn back there quickly as we're talking about this. Chapter 10, verse 28. This is when Jesus just had his little back and forth with the young ruler, the rich, affluent young ruler who wasn't willing to give up all of his possessions to follow Christ. And Peter begins to say in verse 28, see, we have left everything and followed you. He would forget that. But Jesus said, hey, listen, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and this age to come eternal life. What Jesus is trying to point out is that Anything that we might lose for the sake of our belief and our love and our affection and our relationship with Jesus will be accounted for because we're not alone. And neither was this man who was walking down those flooded streets of Houston with his son. The church would rally around him. The church would provide for him. The words of Jesus right here would ring true right now for this man. As a church, we want this to be us, right? We want to be transfixed with the person and work of Jesus. Why? Because we know how it ends. Because we know how it ends. We can read about the injustice of Jesus' trial today and know that it was leading to our justification. We know how it ends. When we take our focus and our fixation off 
the person and work of Jesus. We're simply putting him on trial. We're testing the truth of his words and the proof of his divinity like these men were doing. Well, what's the answer then? What's the answer? How, how do we begin? How do we begin again? Let's go back to chapter 14, verse 27, because I think our answer is very clearly right there. I'm sorry, 14, verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows crows twice, you will deny me three times. That's not it. It's what follows it. It's right here. And he broke down and wept. That's the answer. We look at Peter and we hate reading about his denial because it does something to us. It convicts us. It points something at us. It puts a knife in us. And it turns our hearts and our stomachs a little bit because when we're really, really truthful with ourselves, we know that we're not that far from Peter. And if we're really truthful with ourselves, we know we are Peter. But it ended so well right here, didn't it? He broke down and he wept. In this moment, his heart became the heart of Jesus who was about to be broken for him. That's what the cross does. The cross broke Jesus so that we might be broken. Well, why did Peter break down and weep? What was that response? Well, Luke twenty two sixty one tells us that after the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. We don't get it here in Mark, but Luke tells us that the Lord turned and met Peter's eyes. And Peter, it says, remembered. In that moment, Meeting the eyes of Jesus gave Peter eyes for his brokenness. And the result was that godly sorrow poured out from the depths of his heart. It was like Peter seeing his sin for what it was. A betrayal and denial against God himself. What we see happening to Peter is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7 when he says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Peter had godly sorrow, but Judas, on the other hand, had worldly grief. This is the broken moment that we all must have. Amen? When our affections for Jesus are moved by our sorrow for our sin to such depths that the only place for us to go is deeper into the loving and forgiving arms of Jesus. Peter's remorse in that moment would prepare him for that moment of rejoicing when he saw Jesus on the shore days later after the resurrection in John 21. And he swam out to him and Jesus received him. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yeah, I think I do, yeah. And Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. Jesus hadn't abandoned Peter. Remorse leads to rejoicing. Godly sorrow leads to God the Savior. You stop challenging the words of Jesus and you start cherishing Jesus. Your life then becomes a living monument to your love for Jesus because 
of his love for you, demonstrated in brokenness at Calvary. That's our prayer this morning. Let's pray. God, we pray for our lack of brokenness. We pray for these moments, which is very hard for us to see, that we find ourselves in the same place as the Sanhedrin, as we find ourselves in the same place as Pilate, as we see ourselves in Peter following you at a distance. Lord, we also want to acknowledge right now how good and kind and loving you were to Peter because you will not despise a broken and repentant heart. So God, let us have that heart. Let us take stock of where we are with you, what we do with you, what we do with your words, the way that we live our lives that shows such little trust and belief in the truth that you have given us and you have filled our hearts with. Lord, let us not fall into the trap of saying that we follow you, but following you at such a distance that you have no tangible place in our lives. Don't let our lives be characteristic of that, Lord. You're calling us in this passage to do what Peter did, which is to break down and weep for our sin, knowing that it's going to turn into joy over the forgiveness of our sin. So Lord, thank you that we have such an anchor of truth. Lord, be our all-surpassing joy and glory this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name and together we said, amen.